Okay, this week's parsha is Parshas Vayetze, and we begin right at the end of last week's parsha, where Jacob is fleeing for his life. He is able to steal the blessings from his brother, and he finds that his brother wants to kill him, and as such, he's told by his mo- mother and then his father that he should leave and go to uh, Haran, uh, back east, to go find a wife and to go settle down and to wait for his brother's anger to subside. Uh, so he leaves and he travels to Haran, but he stops along the way with one of the most famous episodes in the Torah, where he stops along the way in the place. Now, just a quick rule. Every time in the Torah it talks about the place, it doesn't tell us which place it's referring to. It's always referring to Temple Mount. That's a rule. Uh, and in fact, Hamakom, the actual gematria, the numerical value is Zerushalayim, it's Jerusalem. Everyone tries to understand why it's called the place. Uh, a lot of different reasons given. One of them is that um, the reason why Jerusalem is not singled out in the Torah, it's always referred to as the place, even though it's kind of hinted, uh, is because what makes Jerusalem special is that it's a place of holiness. It means we could have called it by any other name, but anytime you give a name, everyone assumes that the name has some sort of role in the essence of the place. But because the place is in itself is so special, it's just called the place. So he stops along the place, and it becomes nightfall, and he takes a bunch of stones and organizes them around his himself, make like a makeshift little bed or tent, and he goes to sleep, and he has a dream, very famous dream. He sees the ladder is on the ground, but the head of the ladder is in the heavens, and there's angels going up and down, and the Almighty gives him a wonderful blessing. He tells him, first of all, the land that you're laying on is, I'll give it to you and your descendants. Once again, the third time, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were each individually given the pledge of the land. And then he tells him like this, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, you will disseminate in every direction, and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you and through your children. And I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to the land. I'll never leave you. Wonderful dream. Jacob wakes up. He's all excited. And he makes a pledge back. And he says, if the Almighty keeps all his promises, I'm going to give everything I have. I'm going to tithe. This is the first reference to tithing in the Torah. That everything, everything that he's going to give a minimum will be 10% to God. There's a few interesting things over here. First of all, there's a little bit of a nuance here. If you actually look at the verses... So the second verse in the Parsha, uh, verse 11, he encountered the place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took from the stones of the place, he took multiple stones, and he arranged it around his head. That's how it starts off. But when he wakes up and he makes his vow of tithing to God, he takes the stone and it's now a single stone. Whereas previously it was a bunch of stones... And now it's only one stone. So what happened? Now Rashi asked the question. He's a nuance. It's inconsistent. He starts off with a bunch of stones around his head, and now there's only one. So there's a very famous Rashi here, quotes the Talmud, that initially he arranged a bunch of stones around his head. And the stones, each one of them was kind of jockeying for a position that the tzaddik, that Jacob, should rest his head on that particular stone. So all the stones are fighting. So what the Almighty do? The Almighty morphed all the stones into one, 
And thus, what began as a bunch of stones ultimately became a single stone. That's, that's what Rashi says. But it's, I'm saying it's, it's evident in the verses, but you wouldn't necessarily pick it up because it's a nuance. There's, a, there's an interesting idea, like sto- the stones themselves are fighting who is going to be the worthy one, which stone is going to have the rights to have Jacob uh, put his head on him. So um, I think the, the idea here is that what is the relationship that we have with this world? So for most of us, or at least the default status of man, is that this is the world that we give all our attention to, our focus to. Jacob was entirely the opposite. He only lived for Lamaba. Like we said, even in utero, Jacob and Esau were battling because they each represented a world. Jacob was Lamaba, and Esau was this world. So the, his only relationship that Jacob had with this world was to use it for spirituality. Thus, what he did, he changed this world from being, from having its own essence to being spiritual. Thus, you see, like, the, even the rocks that he encounters, they're spiritual. And he sees rocks, and to us, if we would see the same rocks, I guarantee they wouldn't morph into anything. Because to us, we downgrade this world. It's, it's what it is. It's, it's, it has its own value as a distinct, mundane world. And thus, for us, it's mundane. For him, everything he encountered was spiritual. Even the rocks that he encountered were spiritual, and they're uplifted into into that realm, and thus they're fighting over it, and they're morphing, and all that happens because of him. He has a dream. So this is interesting that if you count in the dreams in Genesis, I did a quick math, it turns out there's 11 dreams, maybe I missed a few of them. This is the first of 11 dreams, we'll have a few more dreams in this week's Parsha. Um, And what's interesting is that all the dreams in, in Genesis are prophetic, are prophecies. Does that mean to say that they, they only dreamed prophetic dreams back in the day? No, it just means that the only time the Torah would tell someone's dream is if it matters. If it's just nonsense that they conjured in their unconscious, it's not important for the Torah to tell us. Also, if the Torah is telling us someone's dream, then it, uh, it obviously matters. And if it matters, it must be it's prophetic. And... Actually, this particular episode of Jacob dreaming and having a ladder, we'll see what that even means. Ladder with angels coming up and down. This episode is used as a prime example when the Rambam, Maimonides, when he gives the parameters of prophecy, he says that all prophecy, all prophecy happens at night in, in, in a dreamlike trance. And he gives this as one of the examples. And the idea is, and we mentioned this idea in the past, that Prophecy is communication of man and God. That's what prophecy is. Now, what aspects of man can communicate with God? It's not man's body. Body's physical. It has nothing to do with God. It's an entirely different wavelength. It's man's soul. Well, if man was only a soul, if we could isolate the soul entirely without any other uh, factors, then it would be very easy for man to have prophecy instantly. Problem is that there are other factors. There's the body, there's the Yetzirah, there's all the other conditions. There's this world, all the effects that this world have on a person. And all those subtract from the person's capacity and, and being primed for prophecy. Thus, for someone to have prophecy, those things have to all be neutralized. So, when is someone, when is someone's body most vulnerable? When you're sleeping, your body's not really functioning at all. It's not even aware necessarily. 
it's totally vulnerable, and thus its effect is as mitigated, and therefore man's soul can once it can have the prophecy without without any intervening or any counteracting forces. Isaac last week uh, had prophecy as well, uh, but he had to have the food, so to speak, to neutralize the body to make sure it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't inhibit the prophecy from happening. It's interesting is that Moshe is the only one. Moshe is the only one who was able to have prophecy during the day and direct communication, face-to-face communication, panim el panim, that he communicated with God, even though he's up. And what we learn more, we study about Moshe, is that Moshe's body and soul were indistinguishable. He had elevated, he had began this process of kedusha, like of holiness, that that Jacob did, to elevate the mundane to such a degree that body and soul were totally indistinguishable, and therefore he didn't need to be sleeping in order to have prophecy, because the body was not at all a, a, a force that inhibited his level of prophecy. So what's this ladder? It's interesting, everyone talks about this ladder as an example of, you know, that matters to us. You know, Jacob had prophecy Okay, we're never going to have prophecy. That's unlikely for any one of us. But there's this idea of a ladder that binds the world, the terra firma that we have over here, to the higher realms. And that really, that's our life. You know, our life is, is that we have a soul. And the soul is, yeah, it's here in the ground, it's here with us. But its roots are from the heavens. So this idea of this merging of these two worlds really is at the epicenter of all of Jewish thought. So I want to just give a few ideas here. I want to give a few ideas of, of, of directions that we can take this latter example to, to, to our own development in spiritual greatness. Ladder is about progression. You want to climb a ladder, you have to do one rung at a time. You try to do multiple runs at a time then you'll probably fall. It'll probably be bad. So this is always an idea that is essential to growth and development that you have to take one step at a time. You try to shoot for the stars. In most instances, in most instances, it's going to fail. But also, one rung leads to the next rung. And it's interesting if you examine kind of the big picture, the forest. You want to zoom out and see the forest. Almost every book that discusses the path to greatness does it in an incremental way that one step leads to the other step. So I have a collection here of ideas here. Maimonides, when he builds his model for achieving greatness, he says you have an insight or you have understanding that brings to insight, that brings to pleasure, and that brings to love of God. And you cannot jump any step. You want to get the love of God, says Maimonides? You have to start with understanding, with intelligence, with cognitive pursuits. You have to take that and progress to the next step, which is to have insight, to have kind of pay dirt with your intellectual pursuits. That brings to tremendous pleasure. He describes the greatest level of pleasure, along with pleasure. And lastly, love of God. And that's a progression. That's kind of going up the ladder. And this is kind of a little bit outside of the six. We have 613 mitzvahs. And that's uniform, so to speak. That's, that's for all Jews. It doesn't say which, you know, which mitzvahs are optional, which ones are more important, less. They're all, they're all the same. They're all mitzvahs of God. But 
What about the other realm, so to speak? How do I find my individuality, my own path to greatness, not just to mitzvahs, which is basic for everyone? We find the concept of, of the latter. So that's my modernities. Masil Sasharm, if you read the path of the just or the way of the upright, you'll, you'll notice that it's built on this same principle. It starts off with fastidiousness. If you, the, first with Torah, you study Torah, brings to fastidiousness, brings uh, to alacrity brings to cleanliness and on and on and on until you reach prophecy. It's like a guidebook to prophecy, but it's built on this principle. One rung leads to another. And there's many more examples. And I think this is an interesting thought to keep with us in our pocket. You know, you know, we're trying to do what's right. We're trying to grow. We're trying to understand what the Torah is and we're trying to understand what mitzvahs are and what the story of the Bible is. Like this, this is what we would say is rudimentary, it's basic, whatever a Jew needs to do. But we have to be aware that this is, you know, once what happens when someone knows all of Torah and studies all of Talmud and fulfills all the mitzvahs? Where is their path to the next step? It's laid down over here. There's some sort of, everyone has to find their own little Jacob's ladder that they can use to achieve their greatness and their morphing of soul and body and spiritual and physical worlds. Now, additionally, we find the angels going up, some going up and some going down. This, I think, is representative of two different modes that we can achieve our own greatness. For some, it's all about thinking about how God influences us. They're taking it down, so to speak. They're, they're, they're thinking about God's influence on their lives and kind of bigger ideas, bigger picture spiritual ideas. They're trying to bring it down to our world. For others, it's taking our world and it's bringing it up. It's uplifting it. And these are two modes, general modes, that we can use in our pursuit of our greatness. Now, it's interesting. If you want to compare the the prayer that Jacob has at the end of the experience with God's commitment at the beginning, they perfectly align with each other. So, for example, Jacob says... If, if God will be with me and will guard me in the path that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear and I'll return to peace to the house of my father and God will be for me for, 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 uh, as a God and the might will be for me as a God and this stone, the single stone that I placed as a memorial will be the house of God and whatever you give me I'll tithe. That's Jacob's prayer at the end. But it almost perfectly aligns with God's pledge to him prior. I'll be with you. I'll guard you. I'll return you. I'll never leave you. But what's interesting is that if you actually compare them one by one, you'll notice that where Jacob says, and God will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, God does not actually pledge that. So there's a little bit of an inconsistency where the four requests that Jacob has align with four requests that God gives, but where, where God says, where, oh, I'm sorry, where Jacob says, give me food and clothing, God instead says, I'll never abandon you. I'll never leave you. And the commentators point out that these two really align with each other. You know, one of the greatest fears that we have in life, how are we going to feed our family? How are we going to pay our bills? And that's a fear that's uniform. And Jacob had that fear as well. It's only natural. And he says, well, the Almighty will give me 
bread and clothing to tend to my needs. And of course, he wasn't asking for anything more than the basic necessities, but even that's a concern. And for us in America, thank God, it's, it's very, it's a very good time to be alive. But in a lot of places in the world, this is still an active concern of people. And what does he might tell him? I'll never leave you. That says it all. When the Almighty says he never leaves us, that is enough for us to know that the Almighty is a loving Father who will take care of, take care of us and tend to our needs. Just a little story here to, to illustrate this. There was a um, teenager that needed to go on this long, perilous trip. And he's preparing for the trip. And his parents are preparing him all his provisions. So his mother gives him his clothing and food for the way. And his father gives him some money or prepares some money for him to, to cover his needs. And as they're getting ready for this big trip, they find out that you know they're going through a war-torn area. And there's rogue elements, and the train ride is going to be very perilous. So the father says, "You know what? I'm going to come with you. I'm going to come with you just to make sure that things ha- things are okay. You know, it's it's a scary journey. I'm not going to let you go by yourself." And they're on the train together, and they're going. And the kid is, starts examining his provisions, and he sees the sandwiches and all the food that his mother prepared and the clothing, but there's no money. So he says, didn't you prepare me, tells the father, didn't you prepare me money? He says, yeah, if I'm sending you on your own, I have to give you kind of money on your own. But if I'm coming with you, if I'm never abandoning you, then I'll, I'll cover your needs. I have, I have the money in my pocket and I'll cover you. And I think it's a good lesson for us to kind of take to heart that, that we believe the Almighty's with us involved in our lives you know it's almost we're taking a trip this perilous life journey but we have the almighty with us so sometimes we examine our wallets how are we going to pay for things well why don't we just forward the bill to the almighty there's this great verse in in psalms you should pass off all your problems to god let him take care of it and to us you know it sounds you know we like to get stressed about things we like that good. It feels good. It makes us feel alive, right? But the truth is, we shouldn't be stressed at all. Why, if we have the Almighty who's there with us in this life journey, why don't we forward all our bills to Him? He needs to pay it, right? I'm, if I do His will, I'm trying to do the Almighty's will. I'm, I'm a good son, so to speak. Let Him pay my bills. Who, which father doesn't pay their kids' bills? Or to a certain... I don't want to bring up that discussion, but... <laughs> yeah, okay. Fine, you know, I, that's a good question. That's a whole class that we, we can talk about that. Uh, but there is this notion, at least, that the Almighty is with us in our journey, and we should take some solace with that, that he, He'll never abandon us, and that will help us as well. You look at this part, we see it starts off with a stone. The next episode, there's going to be a huge stone that Jacob's going to roll off. At the end of the parsha, there's a stone that they erect as a memorial between Lavan and Laban and, and Jacob as kind of a, like a DMZ. Moses hits a stone and there's water coming out of it. Stones play a big part. And I think one way to say it is that a stone, like the word, what's the Hebrew word for stone? Evan. So Evan is actually a blend of two words. Anybody? What is Evan a blend of? Exactly. No, Abba's father and Ben is son. So... That's all morphed into the word Evan, father and son. 
And I think the idea is it's continuity, it's perpetuity, right? If you have a stone, you go to the the Western Wall, those stones are two thousand years old, or more than that, a little more than two thousand years old, right? They were they were put up by Herod, right, nineteen years before the Common Era, and they're still there, and they're still as resplendent as they were prior. And the idea is it, it's it's you know it's it's a degree of permanence. When Jacob is saying, I'm taking a stone, I'm making a memorial, a permanent memorial, means this is a total commitment forever. There's water covering a rock in, in the next episode, and Jacob comes and says, oh, this water that's being stopped by this rock, I'll just move it away. I'll let the water come forth. Moses, there's a rock, and there's water trapped in the rock. He just hits the rock, and the water comes out of it. It's On one hand, it's a spiritual symbol of continuity and perpetuity. On the other hand, it's also could be a blockade to the water, and that's also moved away. That's why we put a stone on top of a gravesite to show that despite the fact that someone's died, but their life and their legacy and their children live on in heaven. So Jacob, he continues his travels after this momentous experience and goes east. Now, it's important here to note, this is a one of the transcendent experiences in the Torah. Jacob is given these tremendous blessings. He has this experience and the ladder and all that. What would have happened had Jacob not stopped off to visit this place. Remember, Jacob has a lot of family history here. He knows this is the place where Isaac, his father, was brought as a, brought as a sacrifice or tempted to be brought as a sacrifice many years prior. He knows that this is a special place. That's why he stops there. That's why he prays there. What would have happened if he didn't stop and didn't pray? Didn't have that inspiration to say, oh, this is the place where my forefathers prayed. I'm going to stop there as well. Well, he wouldn't have gotten those blessings. So all these blessings that we have, tremendous blessings that the Almighty gives and pledges to Jacob and his children, that would not have happened had Jacob not had that moment of inspiration to say, how could I pass by on my travels and not stop in the place where my forefathers prayed? I think this is a great example of how, you know, we kind of tend to discount inspiration a little bit, because we want to see kind of more concrete action. That, that's more impressive to us. But Jacob is inspired. It makes a small act. I want to go stop and pray. And he has this momentous dream, this prophetic dream, that it would not have happened if you just trace it all back if he had not had that one experience of inspiration. And it really shows a little bit the power of a moment of inspiration. Someone is inspired to pray. And they'll say, okay, I, you know, let me push it off. Let me do it. I'm busy some. Right? No, I'm I'm traveling now. I'm, I have an opportunity to stop. Let me stop right now and have that prayer. And who knows uh, to what dividends uh, that could actually bring. He travels uh, to Haran and he arrives in towards the evening. And he sees a bunch of uh, flocks with their shepherds waiting around the well. Now, why does he go to a well? It's a Jewish tradition. You want to find a spouse, you go to a well. <laughs> And he sees on top of the well a, a, a large stone. They're waiting for a critical mass. And not when there's enough shepherds and flocks, they can push off the stone from on top of the well to give water to the sheep. Jacob has a conversation with him as they're waiting. Where are you from? We're from Haran. Do you know Lavan or Laban? He says, yes. How's he doing? And as they're talking, Rachel is coming with the flock, with her father's animals. 
and Jacob sees her and he's wondering why are they waiting? Like, what, what, what we're just sitting around here waiting? It's the loss of productivity. Uh, what, and they tell him, well, we have to wait till everyone comes till we can finally push off the rockets so big. And when Jacob sees Rachel, his cousin, and he sees that she's bringing the flock, he walks over and just pushes it off by himself. And he gives uh, water to drink uh, to Rachel's to Rachel's sheep. And he kisses her and he starts crying. So a few things here. First of all, Jacob, he comes and he sees three flocks waiting for more shepherds to come to push off the rock. No one else shows up besides for Rachel. He sees Rachel and he pushes it off himself. So why doesn't he push it off earlier? Clearly, Jacob is a man of tremendous physical strength. There's a huge rock and no one else could do it by themselves. And even three shepherds can't do it by themselves. They're waiting for more shepherds to come. He sees Rachel and does it himself. So clearly he had the strength to do it. So why does he, why does he do it earlier? He wants to wait and make everyone else wait? It's a question. It's an, it's an interesting. It's not, not the most difficult question to probably face today. But I want to say an idea here. I want to say that Jacob had innate vigor, vitality that would have allowed him to push off the rock. But had he tried to do it earlier, it wouldn't have worked. Only because he saw Rachel and there was something that was untapped, so to speak, from within him. Once he saw the person he's going to marry, that kind of connected the dots, so to speak, and gave him that extra power, that untapped, that extra vitality that was latent within. And I, and I think the idea is that, indeed, Jacob was a fantastic priest, prophecy, but he wasn't complete. He wasn't complete, and there was something, even just merely seeing Rachel, that brought a certain element of completion to him and exposed some power that he had stored within him. He sees her, he gives the water, he kisses her, and he cries. Why does he cry? You would think so, but the Torah doesn't tell us, like, just raw emotions. The Torah never shares with us emotions that don't have meaning. So actually gives two reasons why he's crying. First reason is that Jacob was foretelling in, in prophecy that he would not be buried alongside her. Remember, Rachel dies on the way back to Israel. She never makes it to Israel. So she's buried in Kevarachal, in, in the burial place of Rachel. Uh, not with him, he's buried with Leah. That's why he's crying. Even even though they haven't even really met, he already prophetically is able to foresee that they're not going to be buried together. That's the first reason, reason Rashi says. Second reason, very interesting. He remembers, remember back a couple weeks ago, we read about Eliezer traveling to get Rebecca, and he came with ten camels laden with all goodness. Now, Jacob and Isaac, they were from an inordinately wealthy family. Yet Jacob travels alone. Why doesn't he come with the same cavalcade that brought Eliezer to go? Now he's going to get married and get settled down. He has to go work as a laborer, as we'll see, in order to earn the rights to marry Rachel. And he gets duped in a series, the first of a series of dupes. So what's going on? How come he's not traveling with the same, you know, with the same uh, goodness, so to speak, to bestow upon the new the new bride? So Rashi tells us some backstory here that indeed he did come be laden with jewelry and all goodness like Eliezer did. 
What happened? Esau wanted to kill him. Remember, then the last week's parasha wanted to kill him. He sees now Jacob is escaping. So Esau sent his son, Eliphaz, to go after him and kill him. So Jacob has all the packages full of stuff, ready to go. And Eliphaz comes and says to him, he says, oh, how are you doing here, my nephew? Well, I'm here to kill you as per the orders of my dad. Like his dad, he was obsessed with the mitzvah of honoring your father. So he says, I will, I'm sorry, I like you, uncle, but my father says to come kill you, and I have to do that. So Jacob tells him like this, there's four people, according to the Torah, that are considered as if they're dead. And those are a blind person, because a blind person can't give to others. Someone who doesn't have any children, because they can't give to others. Someone who is a leper, who lives outside, away from the community, because they cannot give to others. And lastly, is a poor person, because they too cannot give to others. Says Jacob, why don't you steal all my stuff? And therefore, it'll be as if I'm dead, because I'm poor. And you'll go tell your dad I killed Jacob. And indeed, you did kill him, quote-unquote, even though he's actually not dead. And that was their solution. You could kill him and fulfill the mitzvah of your father, instruction of your father, without actually killing him. So he steals all his stuff, and now Jacob shows up empty-handed. And he starts crying, how is it possible that the slave shows up with ten camels and I show up with empty hands? That's why he was crying. That's what Rashi says. Now, I think the, the question is, okay, so Jacob came out empty-handed. But Jacob, someone who's living for the spiritual world, why is he so sad? Is this a reason for Jacob to cry? Listen, you know, we know the Almighty runs the show. We have faith. And we know that sometimes things happen. And the Almighty wanted me to come empty-handed. Why is this a reason for him to be sad? Like, the only reason why someone should be sad, or someone like Jacob should be sad, is if there's a spiritual reason to be sad. According to that position in Rashi, that he's crying because of sadness, of being empty-handed, I think there's a legitimate question to ask someone like Jacob, and what he represents, to be crying because of lack of material material and financial wherewithal. Is that a reason for him to cry? He's still alive in many other ways. I think it's a good question. And I, I saw an answer. I thought it was interesting. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's enlightening. Remember, Jacob's coming to visit his cousins. His cousins live a couple of hundred miles away. Right? That's why he's coming to visit his cousins. And these cousins living on either side of the religious divide, you would imagine there was some sort of interplay between them. They know that they have the, this great uncle, Abraham that went to Israel and started a movement and disavowed idolatry. And he had his son, Isaac, and we came back and married Rebecca. And they're so wealthy and everything works out for them. Uh, but we're here, you know, we're, we're kind of in the old country. We haven't left and we're still sticking to the behaviors and morals and priorities of yesteryear. And you would imagine there was some sort of competition between the two, you know, the old guard, so to speak, versus the new upstarts. And Jacob shows up, and he says, I'm bereft. I got no money. I'm, I'm coming just as a pauper. Maybe Jacob was crying 
not because of what it means for him personally, but of the impression that the people who he's coming to meet, that they're going to have. See, look what happens. These people go and they become, they get into involved in religion and they start to disavow this world. And look at him, look at him. He's come with just his clothing on his back. That's all he has. Perhaps Jacob was crying because of the perception that his cousins are going to have on the principles that that his family embody and they would cause to think negatively about what he represents. Just an idea. Now, Lavan, Jacob's uncle, Rebecca's brother, he hears that, Jake, that Jacob arrived, and he starts running again like he did in, uh, two weeks ago. He runs, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, and he brings him to the house, and they, they tell over the whole stories. They start to give each other the backstory. And Rashi says, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that the reason why he ran was the same reason why he ran last time, because he saw the gold. And he was someone who was obsessed with with money and, and material, that he hears that Jacob is there, he must be bringing with him also all the gold and all the money, like Eliezer brought. And he comes and he sees Jacob just standing like that. So he starts hugging him to feel, patting him down, where is he hiding all the money? And he starts kissing him, maybe it's in his mouth, what's going on? Maybe he brought like precious gems and he's hiding them in his mouth, what's going on? And when Lavan finds out that Jacob has nothing, he says, well, I'll let you stay because after all, you're my flesh and blood. Nonetheless, means I'll let you stay for a month. It means, it's implied that Lavan did not have the same attribute of kindness to give even to total strangers, the only reason why he allowed Jacob to stay even for a month was because they're family. And that's it. After a month, you're out. Jacob offers to work for seven years in exchange for being allowed to marry Rachel, Lovin's daughter. Now, if you look at verse 18, you'll notice where Jacob makes this proposition. He says, I'll work for you for seven years for Rachel, your daughter, the younger one. Jacob knew that Lovin can't be trusted. So like a good lawyer, he crafted the agreement that there should be no room for any misunderstanding. I want to marry Rachel. Well, which Rachel? I'll get Rachel down the block. No, no, your daughter. Daughter, I have multiple daughters. There's Leah also, she's the older daughter. No, you're a younger daughter. He crafted all that into the agreement just so it should be absolutely clear who he wants to marry, what this deal is. He signs off on the deal and he starts working for him and he works for seven years and the Torah tells us those days were they flew by because he loved Rachel so much. Now, normally, if you're waiting seven years to marry your beloved, those it will be agonizingly long. Yet, Jacob says they flew by because he loved her. So it seems like it's the opposite. And I want to suggest that Jacob is now trying to craft or to build what's going to be the Jewish people. And this is an entirely spiritual pursuit. Because these seven years are seven years of preparation to build the spiritual 
edifice of the Jewish people. That's what it's about. And therefore, in spirituality, in spiritual pursuits, the journey is the destination. The reason why people, when they're waiting for something, have anticipation to something, it takes forever, is because they're, the, the, the journey is the problem. It's the destination they want, and the journey is in their way, and therefore it slows down. Whereas, when, in, in, in the spiritual pursuits, we're not trying to get to some destination. The journey itself is what we're trying to do. This process, of whatever Jacob did over these seven years, that in itself was his activity, to build the Jewish people, and therefore went by fast. I want to give you just an example. There's a university, right? People go to university, why? To get a degree, or to get their undergrad, or to master or a PhD. They're trying to get a destination. When you go to yeshiva, you're coming not to emerge with some sort of document, or diploma, or anything like that, or ordinary, rabbinic ordination. You're coming to study Torah. Thus, there are people that are in yeshiva, and they're 60 years old. And not because they're not capable. They're very capable. Because when we're studying Torah, we're not studying Torah to say, Give, let me study the Almighty's Torah so I can get some sort of flimsy document to show, put on my shelf. Put up, you know, to hang up in my office. That's not the way we do. We're studying Torah because it's, it's the Almighty's Torah. The journey is the destination. And therefore, the, des- the destination could be your whole life. Your whole life, you want to study the Almighty's Torah. That's, that's a wonderful opportunity if you're able to do it. Wonderful. All the power to you. But it's a mistake to say, just like we have in, in the secular world, people are trying to get an education to have some sort of endpoint, journey towards an endpoint. It's a mistake to commit, to, to bring that over to the spiritual realm and say that we're, how many years do we need for our ordination? You know, it's a four year program, a six year program. No. This, the program itself, is the goal. If you want to get your ordination, get your ordination. That's fine. Yes, you might need some sort of documentation to say you're quote-unquote a rabbi, but that's not the goal. The goal is not to get to there. That, 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 that's ancillary to the goal, which is to study Torah. So he finishes the he finishes the seven years. He says, give me my wife. They make a huge party. And Lavan shows his true stripes by doing a switcheroo. And he takes not Rachel, that was agreed upon, he takes Leah. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up and finds out it's Leah. And surprisingly, he didn't know at night. Interesting. And he goes over to love and says, what's the deal? Did we make it, did we make a deal? Why do you, why did you deceive me? So love and tells him, well, in our community, you know, the way it works is that the older girl gets married first. And, and Jacob's like, you couldn't have tell, told me that a little earlier. <laughs> Either way, they make it, they say, okay, you're a great worker. I'll give you Rachel, but I want another seven years of work. So this time Jacob says, yes, but I want to have it up front. I don't trust you. You'll supplant someone else instead. No, we're going to marry Rachel after seven days of, of festivities for Leah. We'll have the, we'll marry Rachel and then I'll begin the next seven years. And he married Rachel as well. And he worked for another seven years, uh, for her. Now, interesting things here to, uh, uh, to analyze. The verse makes it clear that Jacob recognized that it was Leah in the morning, not in the evening. Why not? So Rashi gives us the backstory, fascinating backstory. Jacob suspected that Lavan might try to 
pull off some chicanery and swap out someone instead of Rachel. So he made a deal with Rachel that they're going to make some secret code words to pass between them at night, even though she has a veil, just to make sure that she's the right one. And he gives her the code words, and they have this plan set. What happens? Rachel notices that Leah's being groomed for, she's the one who's getting the bridal gown. And he, she realizes this is all going to happen, and you know, Leah's heading down the wedding canopy. So she tells her, oh, by the way, these are, this is the secret, she gives her the secret code words. We'll see a little bit later on the greatness of Leah and Rachel in this episode. But let's start with, with, with let's start with Rachel. Rachel knows that she is the one who was part of the agreement. She knows that. And Jacob even tells her that this is the agreement and here's the secret codes. But in order to prevent the shame of Leah, what does she do? She gives up the code words and thus allows this to happen, even though it means she's left out in the dark. She's left out in the rain. She does that voluntarily. And I think one of the reasons why is that we're going to build, if we're going to build a, the Jewish people spiritually here in, in this whole story, we cannot build it on the backs of someone else's shame and pain. If, if Jacob's going to ask her where, what are the secret code words? She's not going to know. The whole thing is going to blow up. She'll be ashamed. Leah will be ashamed. And it'll just head downhill from there on. And therefore, if the Jewish nation is going to be built upon the shame of Leah, it's never going to flourish. So Leah makes the calculation, I'm willing to give up my, my man, so to speak, Jacob, so my sister doesn't get ashamed. So she gives her the code words. Now, what's interesting is that it's clear from the continuation of the story is that Leah never knew that this was all part of the big plan. Clearly, Leah thought that she was always the destined one to marry Jacob. She was the only one, after all. And Rachel was just giving her a message straight from Jacob. She was never made aware that Rachel was the intended one and she came as an afterthought. That's abundantly clear. We'll see that, we'll see that in, in, in a little bit. But here we can really take a moment to appreciate Rachel's greatness. In fact, the verse in scripture uh, indicates that when Rachel is buried, the reason why she's buried in, uh, on, on the footstep, on the doorstep of, of Israel, or right, right inside Israel, is because when the Jewish people are leaving uh, to Babylon after the temple's destroyed, they all stop off and pray at her gravesite. And the verse tells that Rachel in heaven is praying to God, well, I had mercy on my sister, you, God, you have to have mercy on your people. And she was the one, by the force of this argument, because of this episode, she's able to compel God, so to speak, to show mercy for the Jewish people because of her compassion and her mercy for her sister. Now, Jacob marries both of them, and God saw that Leah was hated because he preferred Rachel, and therefore they might have opened up her womb and she was very fertile. It's interesting is that this indicates that she was hated, but the verse starts that God saw that Leah was hated. Only God saw that Leah was hated, no one else saw. It means it was imperceptible to anyone but God. 
But there was some slight favoritism that Jacob had to Rachel over Leah that God could tell, but no one else could perceive. And therefore, she had a whole bunch of kids in succession. Four in succession. And then it stops. She stops having kids. And Rachel is entirely barren. Leah has a bunch of kids. Rachel is barren. Rachel is so disappointed that she tells, in in chapter 30, she tells Jacob, give me children for now I'm going to die. I'm dead. I'm a dead person. I have no, I have no value. And Jacob tells her what he means instead of God. You have to pray to God and he should help you. And then uh, the two midwives are given to Jacob as surrogates and four more sons are born. And th- thus the total goes from, from four to eight. And then we learn the story of the Dudaim. The Dudaim was some sort of, it's not clear what it was, some sort of herbs or some sort of aphrodisiacs, mandrates. No one knows exactly what it was. Either way, people believe that this would help to fertility. And Ruvain, the oldest son of Leah, is trying to help his mother have more kids. And therefore he's going out and he finds in the fields some of these Dudaim. And Rachel asks, Rachel asks, Leah to give her some of these dudaim. And this is a very insightful verse, verse 15. But she said to her, this is Leah talking to Rachel, was your taking my husband insignificant? And now to take even my son's dudaim? This verse really describes what actually happened in the backstory. We know that Leah took Rachel's husband. That's what we know. Leah clearly didn't know that. She thought she was always the intended one. And then Rachel just jumped on the bad wagon and said, oh, well, I want to marry Jacob as well. And clear, so in her eyes, she's looking at Rachel as if she's stealing my husband. When we know the truth, the truth was it was the opposite, but she didn't know that. So this shows, A, on one hand, Rachel's greatness to never give off the indication to Leah that of this whole story, that really she was the one who was in Jacob and and Rachel, to never give up the impression that she was really a, an afterthought, so to speak. It was kind of tacked on because of Lavan's uh, deceit, number one. But number two, even Leah. Leah is provoked now years into the marriage into making this comment, but she never made this comment prior. So it really shows the greatness of these women to be able to, uh, on one hand, forfeit everything and never mention that at all on Rachel's part and on Leah's part, the assumption that she was totally, uh, um, that her husband was taken over by Rachel and not bring it up uh, for many, many years. Leah has two more sons and a daughter. That brings a total of ten sons and one daughter. And the Almighty finally remembers Rachel and... He opens up her womb and she has a son. Now, whenever it says the Almighty remembers, every time we've had so far in Genesis, the Almighty remembers, it's happened twice. Both of them, the Almighty remembers the uh, good deeds of someone. The Almighty remembers over here in our instance the good deeds of Rachel, that she forfeited her, uh, her code words to Leah. And in that merit, she had a son and that's that's Joseph. And the Torah gives us two reasons why Joseph was named as such. The first one is now that God asaf et cherpasi, God gathered in my, gathered in my disgrace. And lastly, she called him Yosef, because Yosef means to add, to add now that he's, she's asking for one more son. 
It was clear, and Benjamin, that's right, he born in Eretz Parsha. It was clear to all of them, they knew that Jacob was destined to have 12 sons. The only question was, what is going to be the breakdown? Who's going to have what? Now that Leah has six sons, and the two surrogates each have two, there's only two more left. Now Joseph is one, that's the 11th son of of, Ray, uh, of Jacob, and there's one more, and in the birth of of, of Joseph, uh, Rachel is asking, let the last one come from me. Okay. Now, when she says, will God gather in my disgrace? This is a surprising uh, Rashi over here. Rachel is devastated. She doesn't have any children. She says to Jacob, oh, if I don't have no children, I'm dead. I'm, I'm worthless. And now she finally has a child. So what is she going to celebrate? So she says, and now they might gather in my, my disgrace. So you would assume it means that she was so sad, and now, and now she's happy. Rashi tells us what was her disgrace. Every time, so long as she was the only one in the household, everything that went wrong in the house was her fault. So if all the cookies were finished, or someone broke a glass dish, she had no one to blame. Now that there's a little precocious toddler in the house, they might have gathered in my disgrace. That's what Rashi says. Very strange idea. You know, uh, if, first of all, like, we don't imagine Jacob as being someone who's screaming who ate the cookies and who broke the dishes, right? But also, like, if you're so sad, you're, you're dead because you have no children, then should, you know, why would you highlight this when you're, when you're appreciating and you have your gratitude? You're gathering my disgrace. Now I've, now I've escaped it. I think the answer is, is that for someone to appreciate the big things in life, that's no big deal. What really makes someone special is not to appreciate the, you know, the, the, the grand picture, so to speak, the, 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 the large gifts that God gives us. It's to appreciate the small gifts. That really is what separates the, uh, the great, the great Sadiqim is their capacity to notice God's goodness in all the minute aspects of life. Someone makes a miracle. God makes a miracle. Splits the sea. Oh, who's not impressed? When God makes a miracle that our heart's beating, none of us are impressed. Well, how is that a small miracle? Well, because it's small because we think of it as insignificant. What really separates people is their capacity to notice and appreciate and give gratitude to God for the most, even the most insignificant thing. So what does Rachel say? What's the most insignificant thing that I'm now improved? That I have a, I have a scapegoat? Even that she's appreciative of. Uh, after Joseph is born, Jacob says, okay, now Joseph is born. I'm ready to leave. He's such a good worker that Lavan cajoles him to stay. And he says, well, why don't you stay and work even more? You're doing such a good job. What essentially happens is, is that they agree on a deal of what he, you know, what, what he's going to do. And Lavan changes the, he changes the agreement a hundred times. And every time he says, okay, I want you to have only, only animal, all animals born with brown spots belong to jo- to Jacob and all the animals are born with brown spots. Eventually they make a decision to flee in the middle of the night. And Jacob brings his wives over. And he makes, he says to them, okay, I see that your father's not treating me like he used to treat me in the past. We, I want to leave. And, oh, by the way, God told me to leave. And thus they, and thus they are both agreed to leave. And this is an interesting thing, just how he presents it. If you just look at this in, in 
chapter 31, in three times, it's, it's the same pattern. On one hand, God tells Jacob to leave. End of story, right? That's, that's it. Story's over. Why would we even discuss any further? But Jacob also says, well, love is not treating me like he used to treat me. And when he speaks to his wife, he says, he makes it kind of a, a, a an argument irrespective of God. And this is, oh, by the way, God told me to leave as well. And I think this is a good, uh, a good example for us, what we could use in our lives, when we think of how we try to change. Change is difficult. You're going to leave. It's difficult. You have to find to make a convincing argument even outside of God. You know, Shabbos. Shabbos is a wonderful mitzvah. You have joy, spend time with your family, get off your phone, get off your television. Oh, by the way, God also says that this is mandatory. That's the way to have change. We have to kind of court ourselves, so to speak, and look at the logic behind a mitzvah. And, oh, by the way, this is what God says as well. Someone's angry. And we know that anger is one of the worst behaviors, one of the worst mitos in the Torah. You look at someone who's angry, and you say, how do we get this guy to change? The first thing you do is you say, you look like a fool. Everyone loses their respect for you. And by the way, you're not, you're not effect, effective either when you get angry. Oh, and by the way, it's prohibited as well. And I think using the, this, this example of due argumentation, it's a very powerful uh, strategy. They leave in the middle of the night. Uh, Lovin finds out. He chases them down. He has another dream in the middle of the night. As they're kind of the two camps are facing each other, God tells him in a dream, beware lest you speak with Jacob either good or bad. God warns him, you better not start with Jacob, not good, not bad. Watch over him. In the end, they have a confrontation. They're kind of screaming their arguments against each other. And ultimately, Jacob makes a very clear and cogent argument how he was mistreated and how he worked so hard and how committed he was, Lavan just totally negates it. The daughters of my daughters, the children of my children, the flock is my flock, all that you see is mine. Sometimes, no matter how clear and cogently and lucidly you present your argument, if someone is convinced that to not accept it, it doesn't matter what you say. Either way, they make an agreement. Once again, they erect a stone as a monument and they agree to not have any ill will towards each other. They separate, they go their separate ways, and Jacob heads to Israel. And as he's heading to Israel, angels are coming along the way uh, to accompany him. And we'll see the angels will begin that partial with those angels. I think we look at the big picture here. Jacob just spent 20 some odd years with Lavan and this was the first, well the, well, the next great challenge, this was the next great challenge of his life to be able to spend so long with such a wily, deceitful person and to maintain his integrity. He managed to do it and he's going to go from one challenge to another challenge, and that's his parsha, where he's going to have to encounter Esav, his brother, who is still... Uh, still has plans of vengeance against him. He's have to encounter that next threat before he could settle down.